welcome to episode 36 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, leadership consultant, Tathra Strait. My guest, Chantal Baxter, is one of the most inspiring humans I've met. This interview demonstrates why. Not only did she found what is now a very successful charity, but she did it in a way that was different from others. She brought transparency, authenticity, and fun to it. Throughout the experience, she put all of herself into it and she paid a price. She talks candidly about her experience stepping down as CEO of One Girl, how her next venture came about, and how she got through a major illness that she nearly didn't come back from. Having been part of her community for a few years, I've really admired her approach and her openness, and I've been quite keen to share the inspiration of her journey with you. Before the interview, I was thinking about the Do It In Address campaign, which you'll hear about shortly. And I'll say more about this at the end, but I'll be doing Google's workshop on unconscious bias for interested organizations who want to help fundraise for one girl. And yes, it's an uncommon occurrence, but I will be doing it in address. What am I talking about? Listen up. I'd like to welcome Chantel Baxter to Tall Poppy. Hi, Chantel. How are you going? Good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. So I'm going to start with where in the world are you? And can you tell us something about something visual about the environment that you're in? At the moment, I am living in Portland, Oregon. I am currently at my boyfriend's office inside his recording studio. So um, he's a filmmaker. (laughs) He's a filmmaker and does a podcast as well. So I'm sitting inside his little closed off room chatting to you. That is awesome. I love it. I didn't know that you were in a recording studio. That's fantastic. (laughs) So Chantelle and I have known each other for quite a few years. We don't know each other well, but um, we first met at the Mind Body Spirit Festival um, working on the Integrity Cosmetics stall. Wow, I can't even think of how many years ago that was. It feels like at least, I don't know, seven or eight. That was early, early days. I don't think it'd be seven or eight, maybe like five, six Maybe was around it? five, okay. six, yeah. But it yes. was definitely a while ago. Yeah, cool. And and so were you in? That sounds like that was in the early days of of setting up one girl. Is that yes? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell me what um, we'll tell our listeners because I have a bit of an idea of what what one girl is and where the inspiration came from. Yeah, for sure. So um, One Girl is a non-profit organization and we have a mission to educate one million girls across Africa. Um, And basically the idea behind it is that when you give girls access to education, um, they're less likely to be forced into child marriage, they're more likely to know their rights, they've got a future Can you tell me a little bit about um, why you decided to start One Girl? I think it came about at a time in my life when um, I was feeling pretty lost. I'd been in the world of uh, web design and kind of the digital online digital world for a while, working as a web designer. Very much the kind of party girl lifestyle, lots of drinking, lots of drugs, blowing all my money. um, And I think was just living a really unhappy, unfulfilled life. I ended up signing up to volunteer in Sierra Leone in West Africa and that trip was basically my game changer. That's when I started meeting, uh, you know, little girls who'd been forced into marriage when they're 10, 11 years old, um, meeting little girls that have been sexually abused um, and just seeing women and girls living in the most horrific and horrendous situations because of poverty. Um, And that was kind of my first exposure to it. Um, I ended up going back to Africa, I think it was a couple of years after that first trip, or maybe it was just one year. And I actually met a little girl um, who was out on the streets begging for donations to go to school. And it was through meeting that girl, her name was Brenda, um, that my co-founder and I got inspired to start the organization with a focus on educating girls. And so tell me a little bit about the the journey of building that organization and getting traction and support for for this initiative. Yeah, it uh it was <laughs> I don't want to say impossible. It was very hard work. I think if anyone has tried to build a business before, that is one thing. Building a charity is a whole nother ball game because you're essentially asking people to give money to you 
for to help other people in a country they've never heard of um, mm. and they have to give their money away to a product that they can't actually see. So it's kind of like they're giving you money so that they feel good but that value exchange isn't super clear. So it took us quite a while to get traction. I think it was about two and a half years and for the first bit we were just doing anything we could to raise money. We were selling boxes of chocolates. We were running these little events and I think it took us, our first year, maybe we raised about $10,000 and the next year was kind of similar. Um, But it wasn't until I think we got our first $25,000 together that we managed to get our first 100 girls back into school. This was in the very, very early days. And Mm -hmm. I remember that was when it was like, oh my God, panic, because it had taken us about two and a half years to raise that money, but all of the school fees were due in nine months. Um, Mm. and so all of a sudden we had to, we had to figure out a way how to raise a lot of money very quickly. And so, um, that was how our, our biggest campaign, um, do it in a dress was born. Um, and that was kind of the campaign that actually put us on the map and had us grow. Um, but I know it's, it's a huge struggle that a lot of nonprofits, uh, go through is how do you go from like this tiny little organization to one that actually raises enough money to build something sustainable and continue to have an impact. Awesome. So tell us about Do It In A Dress. What's that campaign about? Uh, so it's basically, we run it in the month of October. Um, and it's basically the idea is that you do an activity wearing a girl's school uniform and you get people to sponsor you doing it. And your goal is to raise at least $300, which is enough to put a girl back in school for a year. So, um, we see people doing all sorts of crazy stuff. We've got, I don't know, yoga in school dresses, skydiving in school dresses, snorkeling in school dresses, pretty much. I don't know. I've, I've, every year I'm like, what are people actually doing that? Like we've had flash mobs. Um, it's just like these insane ideas that people come up with, um, all wearing a girl's school uniform and, um, yeah. And the campaign was a huge success and we grew really quickly after that first year. So, um, yeah, that's the campaign. So I can imagine the growth presented its own challenges. What kind of challenges did you experience once things really kind of hit the ground? Um, I think in the early days we we were earning or raising a lot more money, but we still weren't paying ourselves any kind of wage. So in the early days, I'd actually sold a house that I owned so I could fund myself to work on one girl because obviously you don't get paid for setting up a charity. Um, And so probably one of our biggest challenges as we grew was um, firstly getting over the hurdle of, okay, we've been volunteers for three or four years now. It's time that we actually start paying ourselves a wage because we were were basically living in poverty while trying to help other girls who were living in poverty. Mm. It didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and that was probably one of our biggest challenges. And then also making the decision to bring on other paid staff to help us as we grew. So, uh, it essentially got to a point where there really was no other choice. I ended up having a total breakdown at the end of 2012, which was one of our, uh, which was our first kind of really successful year. I think we'd raised just under half a million dollars. And a lot of that was the pressure of running this volunteer organization and doing it for free. But it got to the point where I was hit December. I had less than $1,000 in my bank account. I had nowhere to live. I had no job, no income. I'd built this organization that had, you know, $400,000 in the bank, but I was kind of broken in every sense of the word. So um, that was probably one of our biggest challenges as an organization. And even up until the time that I left, there was always that dance between how much money we raised and how much money we could actually use to support the team, build the team, um, hire staff to actually grow the organization. So tell me a bit about that I can imagine how challenging the, the, the move from not paying yourselves to paying yourselves was, especially, you know, given the situation you've just described. So can you talk a bit about what that was like for you to, to move, to transition into being a paid fundraiser? I think when it happened, it did just feel like time, like it really was a crossroads for us. So um, it was very much like I was clear that like the money that I'd gotten from my the sale of my house, that was all gone. And so it was really like we 
didn't really have another choice. It was either the organization scaled back massively because David and I could no longer work full time on it for free. Um, or it was that the organization paid us and the board agreed to pay us a wage so that we could actually live. Um, funnily enough, I think the board were more ahead of their time in that. I think they thought we should have been paying ourselves earlier than what we actually were, but it was really our own kind of personal hurdle of going, no, all the money needs to go for the gir- to the girls. We're okay. We're surviving. We're living. And it wasn't until we kind of hit that breaking point that it was like, oh, actually like, shit, this isn't working. <laughs> we need to go another way. So when we finally started to get paid, it was like, oh, we probably should have done this a little sooner. Um, But um, yeah, it was, it it was just time. I remember talking to you quite some time ago, actually, I guess it wasn't that long ago. It was before you, you moved um, to the US, but we talked about mentors and about the role that they play in, you know, our lives as we are building organizations and businesses. What kind of role did they play in some of the decisions that you made, in t- especially being, a, you know, a, a CEO of an organization or an, and a founder of, a, of an organization at such a young age? I guess I, I don't know if I had any, I guess, official mentors per se. There were certainly people that I would go to for advice in, in almost like an unofficial capacity because you're growing something that like I was growing something I'd, I'd never grown before. Like I had no experience in international development, no experience in fundraising, in marketing, like it was all kind of done on the fly. Um, so I know I, I did seek a lot of advice from, um, my friends who were doing really well in the business world because I thought they had a lot of lessons that could be applied to the nonprofit world. Um, Mm. so yeah, I had a friend that I, I don't know how often we would catch up, but, um, he runs a really successful digital agency. And so I leaned on him quite a lot when it came to setting up the organization. We also had our board of directors. That was actually a huge help. Initially, I didn't like it because I thought they were just there to tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> but in reality, like I was surrounded by people who had built very successful nonprofit organizations, who'd worked in all the areas that I knew nothing about, like, um, accounting, the finance, the governance, all the things I call the boring stuff. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. they were they were really critical in getting us to where we are today because if, it, if I'd just been left to my own devices, I would have done everything on the fly and I think it could have easily fallen apart. So having that board of directors there, um, I guess, again, in that unofficial mentor capacity um, was something that was a huge benefit. And what do you think are some of the factors that, that led to the success or, or the appeal of the organization in terms of, you know, what you built and the, the cause itself? Um, why do you think it was or is as successful as it is? I think because from the very beginning, we wanted to do things differently. And I'd, I'd been around international development just a little bit, like a very, very small amount. And I saw a whole bunch of things about charities that I didn't really like. Um, Mm. And so our goal was to kind of be the opposite of that. So I think in our manifesto, we'd have lines like, as an organization, we will never use guilt to sell. So we were never going to show pictures of starving children in Africa and be like, you need to give us money to save this child because we didn't believe that guilting people into giving was a good long-term solution. Um, And so our whole goal was to inspire people and to make interacting with a nonprofit organization and interacting with a cause fun. So we were Mm. cheeky, you know, do it in a dress has got guys running around in dresses. We're a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, (laughs) And we were very much, I was like hell bent on insane levels of transparency. So I wanted Mm. to bring people on the journey of what it was like to build a nonprofit organization. And that includes, Mm. I remember in our manifesto, the good, the bad and the ugly. So if stuff Mm. went wrong on the ground in Sierra Leone, like we'd be telling you about it. Um, There are a couple of years that we failed our audits so our overseas audits because there wasn't enough um wasn't enough like receipts and systems set up properly in the early days so that we could pass our audit and Mm. the reality is is that the accountant said to us you know give me a bit of extra money and I'm gonna I can I can just give you a pass on this audit and we're like well no we're not gonna do that because that's absolutely against everything that we stand for so 
Um, we put up on our websites the the two audits that we'd failed and then worked our asses off to make sure that it didn't happen again. And I think the That's year awesome. I left, we finally passed our audit, thank God. Um, we finally <laughs> had all the systems in place. So it was stuff like that. I think that kind of raw openness and honesty about what was actually going on, it allowed us to build a lot of trust within our community um, and – yeah, we weren't trying to pretend to be something that we weren't. We're this small, agile, tongue-in-cheek organization and it just worked. Now, you have to excuse me. There's a train going past right now that's going to make a lot of noise. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Cool. Because um, I actually really like, I really like trains. And awesome. <laughs> I, have, I have a feeling I've actually been on that track near where you are. But anyways, that's another story. Um, <laughs> I really like how much you bring people on the journey with you and you've built a huge following and a huge community of support in, and I remember seeing like videos of you being over in Sierra Leone with your team and you know, that you like, it's not luxury for, for us here. And you kind of showed what you were experiencing in terms of your accommodation, but also just being with the girls that were dealing with such tragic experiences when we compare you know western experience to their experience and you know you are very open with your emotion and you know weeping and 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 it it's compelling it's I'm gonna say it's beautiful like it 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 has me wanting to support what you're doing because you you bring me right there without yeah with no guilt it's just like this is the reality and I want to do something about it and I love that so I really admire the approach that you've taken in that sense. So can you talk a little bit about your experience of um, perhaps using social media to, to take people along that journey with you? At the start, it wasn't really intentional. Um, it was just, I guess that was the means I had to communicate to people outside of me. You know, this was, I don't know how many years ago we started, five or six years ago. Um, and I guess I've always been... I don't know if I've always been brutally honest. Maybe I have. I don't know. I've always been somewhat willing to kind of share my experience and um, being quite outspoken, whether <laughs> for, the good, for good or bad. It did it certainly doesn't always bode well for me. I have gotten in trouble because of it. Um, but again, I know that like people are attracted to authenticity and they're attracted to realness. And I know from all the things that I used to follow online, I loved seeing people's journeys. I loved knowing what went wrong. I, you know, I could, if I was taken on that journey with them, I could celebrate the success. I could cry with them when they were failing. Um, and there was really that, I guess, feeling of being part of something and being part of their lives. And so, Having seen that online and actually done quite a lot of research and learning about um, blogging and building communities, it was just something, I don't know, I, I don't want to say it came naturally because it, it, I, I certainly researched it a lot at the start, but I think I just kind of fell into it and it felt like a very natural expression, which is why, perhaps why it worked. So I want to ask you about stepping down as the CEO founder of your organization. Because I remember when I saw that, you know, your job was up for grabs, I was like, wow. And honestly, I actually for five seconds considered applying because I was like, so in so much admiration of what you had built. Um, but I can also imagine that would have been a really challenging experience. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what you'd like to share about that. To be honest, it, it was time um, and it was probably, I knew I was ready to go probably a couple of years before that ad went up. <laughs> so um, by the time it did go up, I, again, was very much like I needed, it was, it was my time to leave. Um, mm. Because I'd thrown so much of myself into one girl and literally like every aspect of myself had been geared towards making this organization successful, I'd neglected my health for a really long time and um, over the probably 18 months leading up to before I uh, finished as CEO, I was, I was quite unwell. Um, I'd moved into a house that had a mold and damp problem and so that had oh, no. really affected my health uh, for a good six months. I was very, very unwell and couldn't seem to get a diagnosis um, mm. and then 
after that, uh, my body just never seemed to bounce back. Like I just couldn't, and nothing bounced back in the right way. I was tired all the time. Um, it was really like some days it was just a struggle to kind of get out of bed. I might go and run a full day workshop and then I'd be in bed for two days afterwards just because my body was so depleted. And so, um, I had been treating myself badly, treating my body badly for quite a long period of time. And so, um, in some ways, like it was just my time again, it was almost like I was, my body was like, you need to stop. Like you have to stop doing this. I had to slow down. I knew I needed a change of pace. Um, and I was ready for it. But I know certainly once I stepped down and once I left the organization afterwards, there was a huge identity crisis that I went to of like, well, who am I? Like if, if I'm not if I'm not the girl yeah. helping girls, like what, what's my worth as a human being? And so, so much of my identity had been tied up in being the CEO, being a keynote speaker, you know, all these kind of outside attachments. And mm-hmm. um, that was certainly something that it took me – uh, months to work through. Um, yeah, until eventually I got really, really sick. And then that obviously was put to the sidelines because I was, <laughs> I was just trying to survive by that stage. So yeah, it, it was, everyone asked me like, was it a tough decision? Not really. I knew it was time. Um, what came afterwards, the identity crisis, that was hard. And so where did um, moving to the US factor in? Because it wasn't too long after that, wasn't it? Yeah, I'd been I'd been planning to move to the US since 2014. So I I'd actually first come here in 2011 and I was like I'm going to move here one day. I just it just was like I wanted to live in in America. Um and it wasn't until I went back in 2014 that I was about to turn 30 and I was like if I'm like I keep saying I want to move to the US, but if there's going to be any time to do it like I need to do it now. And so um, I I started the planning then basically. I knew it was going to take a long time to kind of untangle myself from one girl. It wasn't going to be, see you guys, I'm out of here in three months. Like the organization wasn't sturdy enough yet for me to just walk away. Um, So I don't know. It just felt like something I had to do. Um, And then I ended up meeting my boyfriend who – when did I meet him? We started dating in 2015, I think it was. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, I was already planning to move to the US. He was already Uh, living in the US. Um, And so that, I guess, put a bit more of a motivation for me to kind of make it happen sooner because international long distance relationships are not fun. Um, (laughs) They're very expensive as well. (laughs) And they're very expensive. They certainly are. Uh, So, yeah. So, I don't know. It was, again, I I don't know. Sometimes I just get these feelings of like, you need to go and do this. And moving to the US was one of them. And so I just trusted that and, and ended up here. I want to ask a little bit about, well, a couple of things. One is um, how B Bangles came to life, but also about the role that you play now with one girl. Are you still involved? Yeah, so I am not involved in One Girl anymore. I officially still sit on the board of directors, but I will be stepping down uh, quite soon. Um, I did plan to be actively involved once I left One Girl. My plan was to stay on the board for a little while, but then step off just because we'd hired a new CEO and Mm -hmm. it can just be quite awkward to have the founder, former CEO, sitting on the board while the new CEO (laughs) is trying to make her mark. So I had planned to step down. at the same time, all of your knowledge and, you know, I mean, you you hold – so much of what the organization's about. I can imagine that, sure, there'd be the awkwardness, but there would also be probably some gratitude that you're still there and available to ask questions of. Yeah, I, look, I don't know. A lot of, I, from my experience, when CEOs and from what I've heard of CEOs, when they come into an organization, they want to come in and just get shit done. Like that's, that's why you yeah. hire them because they're the kind of yeah. people that can just take an organization and run with it. Mm. Um, so... I think often the shorter the handover, the the better. Um, okay. Like it's good to get to get the lay of the land, but for the most part, you want to get the new CEO in, and then you want to get yourself out of the way and let them do their thing. Um, right. The last thing you want is the CEO, former CEO slash founder, kind of holding on for dear life, going, "Don't do that! Don't you know? Don't change this! Don't change that!" You really just have to kind of let them go and run with it. So we had quite a short handover. 
Um, and then I very much needed a break after I left. So um, the new CEO has kind of had free reign and I've, I don't know, it's just like awesome. You you guys go do your thing. The organisation has needs to stand on its own two feet without me and it certainly has. So um, awesome. it's great, great to look at it now and go it's sustainable and it was not dependent on me needing to be there. And so where does B Bangles come into the picture? So that started um, after, basically after my getting poisoned by the mould house for about six months. <laughs> I, ended, I ended that year um, in a bit of a puddle on the floor, which seems to be a bit of a theme of this podcast. I promise you I am <laughs> fairly, fairly well put together these days. I'm not always having a breakdown. Um, so, <laughs> I love yeah. that you're able to just be honest that that's part of the process because it really is in so many ways. It, it just doesn't get talked about, which is why no. I really admire the transparency that you bring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, so, so I... Um, basically got to the end of that year and it had been a rough as guts year. I'd finally figured out the house was making me sick with the help of a naturopath. Mm. Thank God I'd moved out. I was piecing my body back together. One girl had had a really rough year that year. There'd been a lot of conflict, um, inside the organization between me and the co-founder and it had just been a horrendous year. And so I was really doubting myself. Like I had a lot of self doubt. I didn't think I was capable of running the organization anymore. Um, really kind of hating on myself and a friend ended up giving me a book, um, a little notebook. And, um, on the front, it had this quote, uh, she believed she could. So she did. Uh, And I I remember looking at it going, this is it. Like, this has to be my rally cry. Like I need to start believing in myself again. And then my life is going to turn around. And so, Initially, I wanted to get a tattoo with those words on it, but I know, you know, I got my first tattoo when I was 16 and regretted it by the time I was 30. So I thought, you know, maybe a tattoo isn't, isn't the way to go. Um, yeah. So I thought of, of putting it on jewellery and I don't wear a lot of jewellery. I'm quite, I guess, simple with my clothing and um, everything, but I do, I can comfortably wear bangles. Uh, so yeah, so I designed this bangle Um got it sent off to be made and the first few samples that came back were revolting and absolutely hideous and I I wouldn't want anyone to wear them. Um, But after a number of iterations, I finally got something that I really loved the look of and so I thought like if I'm going to love wearing something like this, then maybe other women will as well. So we put up, I think I got 30 bangles made. I put them up in the one girl store over Mother's Day um, just to see if they would sell and they sold out. And then we had a wait list of people wanting these bangles. And that's basically where it it was born. It came from that of going, okay, this, this could be a good new little business. By that stage, I already knew I was going to leave one girl. And um, I thought I'll just kind of keep this in the background until, um, yeah, until I'm ready to leave, leave the charity. Awesome. I love it. And, and so can you say a little bit more about the, a few of the other sayings or phrases that are on the Brangles? Because yeah, they're, they're sure. fun, they're cheeky, they're empowering. I, I love them. So yeah, t- t- tell me a little bit more about that. Going through One Girl, I, I found I spent a lot of time trying to be someone or something that I wasn't. And so when it came to be, um, I made up my mind that this company was going to be all about being yourself, being who you are, owning who you are, light parts, dark parts, quirky parts, whatever parts, like it's like, that's why the company is called B, you know, it's just about owning, owning yourself. And so, um, at first I started with like, you know, the saying she believes she could, so she did, which I love. But then as I got more comfortable, it's like, well, let's, let's get a bit cheeky with this. I ended up writing a blog post and it had one line in it that said, be the shiniest fucking unicorn in the room. Um, and someone was like, I want that on a bangle. And I was like, are you serious? Like you want that on a bangle? And they're like, yeah, do it, do it. So I put that on a bangle, made a video for it. The video ended up going viral with like 200,000 views and we sold wow. about $35,000 worth of these unicorn bangles in a month. Um, That's amazing. And I was, <laughs> it's like, okay, people people like the real stuff. They like the quirky yeah. stuff. And so yeah. that that's more of the path that we've gone down now. So we've just, our latest bangle has got, you've got this on it, um, mm. which is another great saying and one that I've used a lot for myself. So I guess rather than going for where we started, which was like, 
let your light shine and live what you love and all these kind of cliche things. It's like now we're getting more into like the raw, fun, um, you know, fucking unicorns. You've got this. Um, what if I fall? Oh, but my darling, what if you fly? So, um, yeah, we're just having, just having a lot more fun with it. And, um, all the more interesting ones do a lot better. And now, now we basically take suggestions from our community and if enough people want a certain saying, then we'll make it. So, um, we've got another couple of bangles getting released in the next couple of months, which will be exciting too. And those are the crowdsourced, the actual, what it's going to be on it is, has come from the community. Yeah. So So we just ask. Mm-hmm. And, and are you at liberty to say what they are or is it uh, secret? it's a secret the next so the, okay. you, the, we, we did a, we did a poll um and we had uh th- we basically took the top three so the first one that got the most vote actually I don't think it was we released you've got this I think that was got the second most number of votes and then we've got the next two which are kind of secret and then we're throwing out so the listeners will have to go to your website to find out what they, they are they will so they will, and that, they won't be available. Uh, so you've got this has just gone live, so we're taking pre-orders for that now. Um, we've got a bit of a hilarious slash comedy bangle, which I have no idea if we're going to just deeply offend people with it. It's it's not one our community have voted for. It's just it's highly offensive and also highly funny, according to us. So that should be released in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then the number one winner, I think, will get released in October because we're launching okay. in the US. So it, it's kind of perfect for the US market. So that should come out in October. Great. Well, it's very exciting to, to hear that about things that are on the horizon. And like I said, the listeners will have to check out your website. As you know, one of the people that is uh, in your community and has followed your, your work for some time, one of the things that I'm aware of that has um, happened for you in the last six months or so is um, CPRS. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to, to talk a bit about that. Yeah, for sure. Um it's basically a disease from your nightmares, <laughs> from, the, from the pits of hell come CRPS. Um, it started for me with a ankle injury. At the, I came back home from a hike one day in Portland and my ankle felt, uh, it just felt wrong. I don't really know any other way to describe it. My foot was turning red and blotchy and my foot felt very hot, like that was the feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of worried that I'd done something to it on the hike and then I luckily I was flying back to Australia the next day so I came back to Australia and by the time I landed my foot was the size of a football Um, my foot and my ankle were as insanely swollen as I've ever seen them in my life it was like purpley red and blotchy color and I was in so much pain that I was crying and I couldn't put my foot on the ground so I went to the emergency room thinking maybe I've got deep vein thrombosis or something like that. And they went through and did all the tests and everything came back normal. And so I was like, well, you know, there's something seriously wrong with my foot. Like I can't put any weight on it because it was just excruciating. And they basically sent me home and said, you know, take some Nurofen and rest for a bit and you'll get better. Wow. Went to see my GP. He's like, there is something seriously wrong. So then, you know, spent a month and a half in Australia getting every test under the sun, MRIs, CAT scans, blood work, bone scans, um, and seeing one of the top kind of orthopedic surgeons in Australia. And he was basically like, structurally, there is nothing wrong with your foot and ankle. I have no idea why it looks like that. I have no idea why you're in so much pain. Um, You need to go to rheumatology. But by that stage, it had been like a month and a half. I gave up, came back to the US and was like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to start physical therapy and hopefully I'll be able to walk again um, and we'll just see what happens. Eventually, I, I found another doctor here who basically diagnoses the undiagnosable. So by this stage, I can't tell you how many physiotherapists I'd been to, chiropractors, surgeons, like I'd been to everyone and everyone was like, I don't know what's wrong. Mm. So um, sent all my test results to this doctor in Minneapolis and he basically came back. He's like, okay, I've looked at everything. Have you heard of a condition called um, complex regional pain syndrome? And I was like, no, looked it up on the internet, completely terrified myself because for the most part, it's considered, if you've had it for longer than four months, it's considered to be incurable. So it's something you just have to live with. And sounds like a lot of people don't live with it. 
Yeah, and the, the nickname for it is the suicide disease. And so um, reading all that for anyone was terrifying. I was absolutely out of my mind with fear. And so, and the, the challenge with it is that it spreads as well. So it had started in my foot and ankle. By the time I got the diagnosis, it had spread up into my calf. So from my knee down, it was um, really swollen, changing color. Um, I couldn't sit with my legs down on a chair. I wasn't walking. Um, so really like lost any kind of quality of life. Mm. And then probably about a month after I got my diagnosis, it um, went to kind of, I guess, the code red phase where it spread within nine days. It spread across my entire body. Um, and then I ended up in the emergency room um, absolutely out of my mind with pain, feeling like I was being burnt alive. It was literally, I, I can't describe any other way. It, it feels like you're being burnt alive from the inside out and was put on a psych hold because I just kept saying, you have to kill me, like I need to die. Wow. And then uh, I think they gave me a couple of ketamine infusions, which is horse tranquilizer, to try and dull the pain. And um, I was still completely suicidal, um, but the ketamine did take the edge off the pain and I think I slept. I'd been awake for so long because I couldn't sleep because of how much pain I was in. So I think I slept for about six hours after my first ketamine infusion. And then it was basically, um, I guess that was the major crisis point was like, what do you do next? Because once it's spread full body, you're medically, you're, you're basically a lost cause. Jeez. But you clearly brought sort of a different attitude to it. Like I remember, I, and I wonder if it was sort of, you know, knowing what it is and then being able to, you know, at least have some kind of control and go, right, okay, I'm going to, you know, do, do something differently here because that's, that's just kind of who you are. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't feel like that for a while. Like my, um, my boyfriend ended up, he fought to get me into one of the only natural treatment centers in the world um, for CRPS. So he fought to get me into that center. The doctor basically that he called said that we can see her in six weeks. And he's like, we'll oh, see you God. in four days. <laughs> so he's like, we drove, we drove across the country to Fayetteville, Arkansas to get into this treatment center. And probably for the first five or six weeks, I was still incredibly suicidal um, just because the pain was relentless. Like you couldn't on, there's, a, there's a pain index, which I learned of, the McGill's pain in, index, and CRPS pain is ranked higher than childbirth. Oh, and wow. so I was in pain worse than childbirth, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I could barely sleep. I couldn't lie down, walk, sit, stand, move without excruciating pain. And so I was suicidal and I, I had given up probably for about six or seven weeks there. I just thought my life was over. And I'd, It's amazing that you lasted that long, but, it, but at the same time, it's not because I, I have a sense of like I said who you are is is not the kind of person that's gonna even in the in the throes of that you you didn't give up I think to be to be honest with you Tafra I did I did give up I was just lucky that I had people around me my best friend and business partner Lauren I had my boyfriend Patrick um and my other best friend and who used to be my mentor Marty Drill um, they kept me alive and if it wasn't for them, I, I wouldn't be here because wow. my um, basically if I'd – my only option at before Patrick found this treatment centre was to go back to Australia and if I'd gone back to Australia, I would have been put on really high doses of horse tranquilizer, mm. you know, every – two to three months for the rest of my life. Wow. Um, and I wouldn't have stuck around for that because that is not the kind of life that I want to yeah. live. Um, and so they saved me and they lay with me in bed as I would cry and talk about nothing but killing myself. Um, they supported me as I signed up for a, a membership to this organization in Switzerland, which allows you to kill yourself basically pain-free, an organization called Dignitas. So wow. um, they were like by my side and watching me and taking me to doctor's appointments and making me food and taking mm. me to this treatment center when I kept telling them that I was a lost cause. So mm. I, I did give up for a good, I'd say, month and a half. And it wasn't until I did a course called the lightning process nice. that I actually got my life back like that's when I realized I could heal and I would heal and that's when I guess the old 
never say die Chantelle kind of kicked back in. Um, and that's when I started fighting again. Wow. And I remember seeing like images of you, it was a barium chamber or something or oxygen chamber that, that allowed you to sort of have some relief as well. Yeah. So I was at the start, I was just trying to do anything to get relief from the pain. So I was doing, I was at the treatment center for good six or seven hours a day. And then in my lunch breaks, um, or after the treatment center, I'd go and do hyperbaric oxygen treatments because they were known to sometimes help with the condition too. Mm. Um, so pretty much every waking moment that I could be doing something to heal myself, I was trying to do it. Um, at least for like the first couple of months after it had spread across my body. So, yeah. I, I remember just, you know, seeing what was going on and just feeling really concerned, as I'm sure everybody was. And But then, yeah, slowly as, as you started to, you know, share images of your recovery, it just... Yeah, it was a real testament to your commitment. And, you know, I've, I've heard of the lightning process. I used to work with someone who um, uses it as a, a way to move through their own condition. And so I have respect for it, even though I don't really know that much about it. But yeah, it sounds like you really were able to, yeah, well, you were able to come through it. And, and it didn't, we weren't sure if that was going to be the case. So I just, it's really exciting to me. And, and again, like I said earlier, before we started recording, seeing a photo of you at the World Naked Bike Ride and thinking, wow, you, you know, you've clearly come a long way. There's, you know, yeah. you, you know, being able to, you know, walk outside. I remember that you posting about being able to hike for the first time and walk your dog and all that kind of stuff after after this horrific experience. So yeah, I just want to acknowledge you for for the commitment and and I, I honestly I want to thank the people that that helped keep you keep you alive to get to the point where you could get beyond this because yeah, it sounds like not a lot of people survive it. Yeah, I think. I think less people commit suicide than what, like it has a nickname, the suicide disease. Um, I think people want to get better. Um, like they desperately want to get better. And I know like, even though I'd given up, I still did really want that for myself. Not, I'm not completely on the other side of it. I'd say I'm 90% back to full health with that final 10% is going to take a little bit longer. But one of the most like damaging things and one thing that I will address when I have made a full recovery is the idea that doctors can put an incurable label on anyone. Mm. When you get diagnosed with a condition and you get online to learn more about it and all you hear are these like horrendous stories, horrific images, you see people's in, people in wheelchairs, you see have doctors saying they don't know what causes it and it can't be fixed and you're on drugs for the rest of your life like it's what what I've learned now about like how the disease is actually started and your body's own insane amount of intelligence that it has to heal from conditions that doctors deem incurable I think it's bullshit that anyone could be able to put that label onto any condition Mm. at all because people do heal Mm. But it, it takes something like I, it takes something every single day. I, I work towards healing and I will be until it's completely gone. I have special meditations. I use the lightning process. I need to keep myself in a positive state. Um, I read about spontaneous healing. I um, learned about neuroplasticity, about epigenetics, like learned wow. everything I could about how to heal myself, um, which I once I'm fully better, I will pass on to the CRPS community because they need to know that mm-hmm. people can heal from this. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly it is not an easy road. And I've got a lot of the people that I've met, mostly women actually, like a huge percentage of it is just women, it affects women um, who are really struggling with their own recovery because, my God, you don't just have to heal from the condition, you have to heal your whole life. And um, it's, it's, a, it's certainly not an easy road to take, but it's definitely a rewarding one. Mm. And the, the phrase that comes to mind is she believed she could, so she did. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into my leadership questions. What does leadership mean to you now that it is different from what it was earlier in your life? Um, oh, there's a really good Rumi quote that I'm going to totally butcher if I say it. Leadership for me now is me modeling what I want the world to look like. Um, so being the very best version of myself and, I used to think that change happened out there, that it was my job to change the world around me, Um, whereas right now I see leadership as me living the very best life that I can. And if I can 
be happy each day, if when I get into shitty moods, I can get myself out of them, if I can work on my healing, if I can touch people's lives who I meet each day, that to me is leadership. It's not necessarily being the CEO of an organization. I, th- I think I'm more of a leader now, quietly running B bangles, healing myself from a condition mm-hmm. than I ever was when I was in that CEO position. So um, for me, leadership is really about being the change you wish to see in the world. I think that was Gandhi maybe who said that. But um, that for me is really what leadership is. I think I know the Rumi quote that you're referring to because it's the one I live by. Yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Today I'm wise and I'm changing myself. That's the one. Yeah, that's exactly the one. Yeah. So my final question is, if you had someone who was coming to you with an idea, a book, a business, a a change initiative, could be a not-for-profit or just something that they wanted to bring into the world, but recognizing both those internal and external barriers, what would you say to them? Ooh, I think firstly, I'd tell them that they can do it. I know whenever, whenever people want to start things, and I face this with any project that I start, whether, you know, whether it was one girl, whether it was B, most people think you can't do it. <laughs> like that's kind of the default reaction is people going like completely doubting you. So mm-hmm. my first thing would be like, you can do this. And if you want this enough and you're willing to iterate and change and pivot and do what's necessary you can have and you can create whatever it is that you're trying to bring to life. And probably the second part of that, and I don't know, it might might fall on deaf ears, is try to do it in a way that you take care of yourself at the same time. Um, I yeah. think if I'd been more aware, if I'd had my time over with one girl, I think I could have built an amazing organisation, maybe a little bit slower Um, but I could have done it in a way that didn't hurt myself, Mm. didn't damage my body in the way that it has or in the way that I have, I should say. So I would say like chase your passion, do what is, do what you love, but oh my God, please take care of yourself and your body and your relationships at the same time because, you know, sometimes we don't get second chances and so... It's always a lot harder to bring yourself back from the brink of disease from disease as it is to just like maintain <laughs> maintain the body in the first place. Absolutely. Um, so that self care element um, is so critical to me now, and um, I'd certainly yeah I'd I'd be asking questions about do this, but how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to feed yourself? Where are you going to live? You know, like make sure that stuff is taken care of too. Very very wise advice. Is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners before we finish up? Okay, maybe, I guess probably just one thing, and this is, this is coming from my own experience. Um, if there is anyone out there who's dealing with a health issue, because obviously that's where a lot of my focus is at mm-hmm. the moment, mm-hmm. is to not believe what the doctors tell you. Like, of course, if, you know, if you've got cancer and you need to go and get chemo or whatever it is, like trust whatever is right for that. But there are so many other things that you can do to heal yourself. And he- like I've, the amount of stories I've read of people healing themselves from like incurable stage four cancers that no one has ever healed them from themselves from before or people healing from Hashimoto's disease or fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue or all these all these conditions that doctors say you will never get better or you're never going to play basketball again, you're never going to walk again, you're never going to do these things again. I'd say you have to challenge that with every ounce of your being because from what I've read it's and from my own experience, it's absolutely not true. I have beaten every single odd that any doctor has given to me. Mm. I will make 100% full recovery from this apparently incurable condition because I believe that I can and I trust my body's ability to heal itself. So if anyone out there is listening um, who's wondering about that, then sign up for the lightning process, read books like You Are the Placebo. Um, There's so much knowledge out there to be gained. And I know that's kind of off the point of leadership a little bit, but I don't know, maybe it's taking control of your own body. Absolutely relevant. And (laughs) so many people see leadership as, you know, self-sacrifice and, you know, even entrepreneurship or just any kind of, you know, project where we're putting ourselves fully into it. I think your inspiration is 
I don't, I still don't even have words for it. I, I am, I just so deeply admire your willingness to be so transparent, so open about your experience and, and what led you to, to where you are now. Yeah, I think the self-care message is, is a leadership message in absolutely. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you taking the time for being with us today. It's been a really um, awesome, great interview. Thanks so much, Chantel. Cool. So, thanks, Sathra. The key standouts for me were around the importance of self-care and health, the values of authenticity, fun and transparency that Chantelle brought from One Girl to Be Bengals, and of course the inspiration and dedication to making a difference through thick and thin. Her story really speaks for itself, the importance of taking care of ourselves. We're no good to our cause or our work in the world when we're unwell. And I certainly felt that recently when I wasn't able to release an episode last week being ill myself. My voice was not fit for recording and I'm only just on the tail end of that now. That week on Twitter, I saw Australian comedian Josh Thomas call out a politician who referred to a school's do it in a dress initiative as gender morphing and immoral because boys in dresses. Josh effectively trolled him, helping to raise over $200,000 for one girl via Craigborough Primary in South Australia in just two days. And this, of course, spurred me on to get my own Do It In Address campaign going. And as I mentioned at the start, I'm going to be doing Google's Unconscious Bias Workshop in Address. And this is going to be for organizations who are keen to help fundraise for one girl and that are interested in learning about the workplace impacts of unconscious bias. If that's you, contact me. And you can watch for a blog post with more details. And you can subscribe on my website to make sure that you catch it. And once it's up, I'll include a link in the show notes as well. Well, that was a bit of a tangent, but an intentional one. What are you taking to heart from Chantel's story? Are you getting the values of authenticity, fun, and transparency in building trust and relationships with your community and your tribe? I reckon there's a lot to learn from her, and her blog is definitely worth following. Check out her videos, too. They are hilarious and often really quite heart-wrenching. It's clear that her values were embedded in one girl and brought across to be Bengals. And I really love her approach and around, you know, the stuff around stepping down as CEO, the transition to a new CEO, and the candidness about the identity stuff and how it took a bit to regain a sense of self after seven years in that role. And of course, her awareness of the personal leadership element in her current role being, well, I guess the way I look at it, she's really brought everything that she's learned across from her experience from one girl to be Bengals. And it really is a great business. It's one that's absolutely worth supporting. She really is an inspiration and I hope you enjoyed her journey. So before I finish, check out the show notes for links to Chantel's website, to one girl, to be Bengals and the stuff we mentioned. Oh, and of course, do it in a dress. Hey, are you up for it? Check out the site for inspiration. What could you do in a dress? Raise some money for girls in Africa to get educated. Or you could support my campaign, host a workshop, or just make a donation. And if you're curious about the newest B-Bangle, as Chantel mentioned, it'll be up in early October. So check the website, bbangle.co, not .com. But again, links in the show notes. Makes it easier. So each bangle can fund a day of education for a girl in Africa. I gotta say, I really love mine. Want to guess which one I got? Leave a comment as to which one you think it is. Next episode, I'll be talking with a couple of amazing women doing great work with young people, empowering the next generation of leaders. I'll also be talking about my next project, Researching Changemakers. So thanks for listening to Tall Poppy. We're coming up on a year pretty soon. So thanks for your support. And if you're new, welcome. Thanks for being part of this paradigm shift to a more human-centered leadership, where we challenge the status quo, stand up, rise above, and take a fresh look at how we lead in work, business, and life. Thanks again for being here. We'll catch you on the flip side.